welcome back to 60 Weeks, 60 Books. Last week, I dangled this week's text as Shakespeare's ultimate teen drama and firmly said no, it was not Romeo and Juliet nor Troilus and Cressida. To dispel any doubts, this week I'm talking about Hamlet. It is week 20, the final week of the books that shaped my teen years. Once again, it is 1980, the year I saw two productions of Hamlet. One was the BBC's televised version with a fey and elegant Derek Jacobi as the Danish prince. The other was the mesmerising and extraordinary live performance directed by Richard Eyre with an extraordinary cast, including the peerless Harriet Walter as Ophelia and Sir Jonathan Price as Hamlet. At 16, Hamlet cast a spell on me, one that has never waned. I had already seen the Olivier film and I knew, thanks to my parents' love of the musical Hair, a rather mangled version of Hamlet's speech to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. The song goes, What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason! How infinite in faculties! In form and moving! How express and admirable! In action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. I have of late, but wherefore I know not. Lost all my mirth. This goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you. This brave or hanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire. Why, it appears no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. My mother bought the tickets for the production of the Royal Court Theatre for my birthday and insisted that I read the play before we went. It was a reread. In 1975, she had taken me to see Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead and made sure that I knew my Hamlet before we went, at least the outline. By this time, the BBC had begun its run of producing full performances of all Shakespeare's plays and I'd read Julius Caesar and A Midsummer Night's Dream in class. I had managed to see three productions of The Dream. One good one, my mother found at the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre, which had me in hoots, one dreadful one that we were taken to at the Horth Theatre in Crawley because it was our O-level text and the school play version only a few months later which I remember chiefly for its set decor which involved huge numbers of ribbons with clean foil milk bottle tops stapled to them. My ear for Shakespeare was still evolving but by the time I came to see Hamlet I knew the plot the basics reasonably well, perhaps the scenes with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern best, thanks to Hare and Stoppard. The air production toyed with us. There is none of the expository scene at the start of the play where Shakespeare sets us up to understand that, prince or no prince, Denmark was a corrupted state under threat of imminent war. Instead, we see Claudius in his triumph, newly married to Gertrude, toying with his nephew, young Hamlet, fresh from Wittenberg. In the 16th century, boys went to university in their mid-teens. A 
across Europe. Cities like Oxford, Padua, Bologna, Heidelberg and Louvain filled up with youth studying Latin and jurisprudence, medicine and natural sciences, 14, 15, 16-year-old boys. Hamlet has been winkled out of Wittenberg by the death of his father, hauled back to Denmark and starts the play sullen, sardonic and resentful. He has been played by actors of all ages, but rarely by anyone truly as young as he was likely to have been, which is somewhere between 16 and 19. Price and Jacobi in 1980 were 33 and 42 respectively, far too old, as were all the filmed Hamlets, Olivier, Gibson and Branagh, not to mention the wonderful Simon Russell Beale, who finally played the role at the National Theatre at the age of 39, and David Tennant, who cracked this particular nut at 37. In theatrical terms, it matters not a whit. I was spellbound by Price, who becomes possessed by his father's ghost, and by all those who came after, with a possible exception of Gibson, who was just a big lunk. But, in my mind, and in my first thorough critical reading of the play in 1982, it seemed so obvious that Hamlet is a teenager. The sulks! The indecision, the equivocation and uncertainty, the cruelty, the on-again, off-again with Ophelia, it is all so blatantly the behaviour of a boy, the archetypal boy, the goth, the dreamer, the tormented soul lugging around his copy of moody, decadent French poets and wearing only black. And Hamlet is a Wittenberg boy, the home of Martin Luther, the place where the former monk nailed his 97 theses to the door of All Saints Church, the cradle of the Protestant Reformation, starting point for a rebel with a huge cause. The university itself was only 15 years old when Martin Luther metaphorically blew up the Catholic Church, a cradle, a crucible of new thought and new ideas. Horatio and Hamlet are products of a place and time that was ready to engage with complex new concepts and ways of worship, as are Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, but they are more classic student types. When he is with Horatio, Hamlet is reflective and engaged with ideas. They share intellectual concerns and pursuits. In the exchanges with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, it becomes clear that they are acquaintances They hang out with Hamlet for carousing purposes only. All they really have in common is the ale, the doxies and the odd ditty. When it comes to critical thinking, logical discourse and realpolitik, Hamlet runs rings around the clueless pair. We can see the adolescent clearly in the soliloquies also. The first soliloquy sounds like a whooping siren of angst and woe. Of course he is grieving his father but he is also utterly grossed out by his mother. Like so many women of her time, Gertrude's position is opaque. Looking at the historical context, she has limited avenues. She is the widow of the late king. She's vulnerable and exposed, as is her son. A royal widow's choices are highly prescribed. If Claudius had not coveted her physically, he might well have ordered her murder or sent her to a convent. She must tread warily at court, and her son is even more vulnerable. But Hamlet cannot see any of these dangers. 
All he can do is rail against Gertrude's apparent frailty. Hamlet's encounter with a ghost does seem to galvanise him. He is given purpose, the motivation to avenge his father's death, a clear direction. However, he swears to avenge his father by the book and volume of my brain. And his first act is not to grab a sword and wreak some vengeance, but to set it down in his tables that one may smile and smile and smile and be a villain. The boy entranced by logic, by reason, by the very philosophy for which he mocks Horatio, is frozen into inaction by his own scepticism and wariness. The ghost may be a demon sent to beguile him into sin. He overthinks, he pauses, and then, when the players arrive, he berates himself for his failures. And when he's decided he's had enough of all that, he diverts and distracts himself by harping on once again about Gertrude's failings. And then he gets it massively, hugely wrong. He entirely fails to kill Claudius when he finds the king in an unguarded moment, but he does manage to stab another father. Fatuous and foolish as Polonius is, In death, he is a catalyst. Claudius is able to rid himself of Hamlet without being seen to dispatch him directly. The air production with Price, possessed by his father's ghost, is predicated on the idea that Hamlet's madness is not fully feigned, but a feature of his grief, and other Hamlets have explored this too. In my view, though, Hamlet is never mad. The fact that he acts with greatest folly towards those who do not really know him, including Ophelia, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, suggests to me that he understands some of the trappings of insanity, but is also well aware that he is not able to convince the people who truly know him, Horatio and possibly Gertrude, that he is unhinged. This Hamlet... The boy of the first four acts is not the compelling, fascinating character that makes the play great. He is definitely amusing, entertaining, full of bluster, sound, fury, impulsive and in many ways a typical revenger. But it is the Hamlet who returns from England who takes what is a reasonably standard revenge play and raises it far above the tropes of the genre even as Hamlet finally fulfills the call for vengeance issued by his father's ghost. On his way to the coast to board his boat for England, Hamlet encounters the troops of young Fortinbras, Prince of Norway, heading for Poland. He is shamed by Fortinbras's willingness to lead, to be decisive, to take action. Still, he cannot see the whole picture, for it is clear that Fortinbras has been sent out of Norway on his military adventure as a distraction from getting too involved in domestic politics. Then, we do not see Hamlet for a good 20 minutes. The actor playing the role at last can rest, regroup and return to the stage to witness Ophelia's burial and tell Horatio the tale of trickery, pirate hijinks and deceit that sees Rosencrantz and Guildenstern delivered as sacrificial lambs to be immediately put to death by the English king. Hamlet returns to Denmark resolute and ready to take on Claudius. He no longer equivocates. 
He is prepared for whatever fate may bring. He understands there is a divinity shapes our ends, rough-hew them as we will. There is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. The readiness is all. Hamlet has shifted from child to adult, from boy to man. Now that he has matured, now that he is ready to own and shape his future, his life is cut short. Although Hamlet's death is tragic and foolish, caused by a petty trick at the hands of his enemies, it is also fitting and timely because he knows the truth. No man has aught of what he leaves, what is to leave betimes. At once a waste and a fulfilment. Hamlet's death is inevitable and ineluctable. And just like Hamlet, all of us must grow up and come to understand the central paradox of our existence. It matters not a whit, and yet it is full of significance. What exactly the nature of that significance will be lies in our gift, each one of us. Hamlet, before his English adventure, is a will-o'-the-wisp, subject to shifting tides and the whims and decisions of others. He is tortured by the need to act and his inability to act, but on his return from his sea voyage, he returns, understanding that he is defined by his choices, however those may play out. It's not the outcome, but the decision that matters. Our lives are hedged and fenced, by custom, by culture, by circumstance. Golden lads and girls all must, as chimney sweepers, come to dust. It is what we do with that life that defines who and what we are once we are dust. And so, it is time to move on and into adulthood, putting away childish things. Next week, I will be looking at the moving magisterial masterpiece that is George Eliot's Middlemarch. <laughs>